Hello, year polygamy listeners and friends. It's been a year since I've talked to you all on the subject, and as you know, we wrapped up the year polygamy podcast with a hundred episodes on the principle of plural marriage and Mormonism. So much has happened since then in just a year. I plan to update you each year with several episodes on the state of Mormon polygamy just because the landscape of polygamy changes so quickly and so much has happened since we stopped recording. I could keep recording each week on this subject, but because it's such a heavy topic and I've really shifted my efforts on this topic towards activism, it's difficult for me to find the time. Of course, we have the Color of Heaven podcast, which has been wildly successful, and I hope to record more of the Story of Woman podcast, but the research on that is bonkers, time-consuming. This month, I'm going to be releasing a total of six episodes on the subject of polygamy. We have historians back. We even have a woman from Islam discussing plural marriage in her culture. We have Mormon fundamentalists who have left their group. And even my husband, my elusive husband that nobody really knows anything about is going to, he's actually volunteered begrudgingly to come on the podcast. So that's what uh, to expect this month. For now, thanks for listening and please consider a monthly donation. I don't podcast full time, although I wish that I could. I have a regular job and a family and podcasts in my free time and it can often make things really tricky for my friends and family so if you want to show that these efforts are worth those sort of sacrifices please consider a donation it makes things a lot easier to bring you this content that i produce edit and record all by myself thanks for listening and it's nice to see you after a year of polygamy i hope that since we last spoke your year has been filled with health happiness and love I hope you enjoy the program. And if you like this music that you're hearing, it's Lady Murasaki. Check them out on Facebook. Show them some love, too. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am back for a follow-up episode. Actually, it's going to be a few uh, episodes Updating you on the Year of Polygamy series a year later. It's now been a year since we recorded the podcast that sort of took off. And I've been dying to talk about a few things that maybe I have learned or maybe make some corrections from the podcast, things that I got wrong, or just talk about how the podcast affected me. But very first on my list of things that I want to update or maybe sort of correct is my episode on the Kingston family, the Kingston group or the Davis County Co-op. And it's funny because if you listen and you have any sort of familiarity with the group at all, it's you can tell what a noob I was recording this because I can't even pronounce a lot of the, the names the same. So I have brought on one of my friends who grew up in the order. He is going to talk about his story and a lot of things about the order. And it's going to be sort of an intense podcast. So probably, I'm not sure if we're, you're going to want to have young children in the room as is the case when we talk about this group. But I want to introduce him and I'll let him sort of explain who he is a little bit. And then we'll kind of talk about the things that I got wrong in the podcast and we'll learn about his life. So Jeremy Tucker, will you say hello? Hi, I'm I'm Jeremy Tucker. Uh, I grew up in the order. Um, My dad was, is Paul Kingston's half brother. Um, They shared a father, Hortel. I grew up down in Huntington, Utah, and in the order, we referred to it as the mine. So if I say that, that's fine. You grew up in the mine. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Jeremy, 
was one of the people that Sanjeev Bhattacharya talked to in his book, Secrets of Wives. And Jeremy has been an outspoken advocate of the order, which is pretty rare. A lot of people are afraid to talk about the group and to speak out. But Jeremy is one that has been brave enough to do this. How long have you been speaking out about the group, Jeremy? Oh, man, at least since, since I left, I think I left in 01 or 02. It's been quite a while. But even before I left, I started, you know, started raising concerns within the group and, of course, got a lot of flack. But you know, when I left, I realized that the power they had was the secrecy. That's why I decided to just be open about everything. You know, it's interesting because since it's been a year and a lot has happened, and um, I've been actually quite involved with this group since recording the podcast, but... I want to talk about really quick some of the things that I've gotten wrong. And if you have any specific criticisms for the episode that I did, Jeremy, then I would love for you to update me as well. Some of them specifically are pronunciations like Washaki. I think yeah. I say Washaki <laughs> yeah. in the original. And that's how you can tell. Like I never said it before. Right. There, there was that. That was a big one. I also, I actually was contacted late last summer by someone who had grown up in a high position in the church who had documentary evidence to show that uh, some of my history was wrong. And so I was taking official histories from order members themselves. And basically the story of the Kingston family is it didn't start out as polygamy. It started out for the United Order. And this person had this, you know, this evidence to show that actually that's not the case um, and we're trying to get some of those documents archived, but that's another thing that I wanted to correct, that actually plural marriage was a huge factor in what started this group, and there are marriage records that are earlier on than most of the order members know about to back that up, and hopefully that will be coming out soon as well. Yeah, that was one of my big frustrations with that uh, original podcast is, you know, Lorraine insisting that it, it was separate because, you know, that was never the case. That's a a deliberate lie. We've always been told to tell outsiders if if they come upon our church, ask what's going on. We're always told to tell them it's a business, you know. And and we're taught that lying to a an outsider isn't really a lie because anything you have to say to protect the kingdom of God isn't dishonest. So it's it was really frustrating to hear Marine say that over and over. I'll hear you quote her saying that over and over that. It was never about religion. It's just not true. The whole Davis County Cooperative part of it was set up to, to deceive the outsiders. So I have a question about that. Why would, considering all of the other sort of stories and mythos around the group, why would they want to suppress the idea that it wasn't about polygamy because in other groups th they make no bones about it. Polygamy is the principle that, that the LDS mainline LDS church has given up and that uh, is why the mainline mainline LDS church has fallen is because of plural marriage. But in the order, it seems that they sort of prioritize at least morally the United order is like their PR shtick and then it's plural marriage. So why, why is that even a cover up? Why is that something they would want to spin? It's just something they've always done, and and everything about them is 
supposed to be confusing to the outside world. They, they're just dishonest about everything. Uh, when I was working with the Guardian of Litem's office on Daniel and Heidi's case, Charles' case, uh, one of the attorneys that was working on that told me that the American legal system is not designed to deal with people like the Kingston's. They're designed to catch the one big lie that a, a witness will get up on the stand and they will tell the truth about where they work, who they are, uh, what they had for breakfast. But with the Kingston's, they lie about every tiny detail and the, the legal system just isn't designed to sift through that. And so that's just the whole culture is to confuse people as much as possible about the group. And they've always tried to maintain this, this illusion of two separate entities, you know, the religion and the business. But whenever they make references to that, they always have that little smirk, you know, it's something we all know isn't real. But it's something they say, something they just use. Before we go on into your story, because I, I want to dig into some of these things that you've said a little bit deeper. Is there anything else that you heard in the original podcast that you really felt like I was misguided or wrong on? And and just for the listeners out there, if you have not listened to that episode, the episode about the Kingsons, go back and listen to that first, because you really need to sort of know the history that we're talking about and it's really going to give Jeremy's story some dimension. But, Jeremy, did you have any other critiques of the episode? Oh, man, off the top of my head, no. It's been three or four months since I listened to it. But uh, that was one thing that just really was eaten at. Just every time Lorraine was quoted saying that, it was just really frustrating. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that. And uh... it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, you know, you can't complain, but it's just hard to... To see outsiders just swallowing all that, it's just hard sometimes. Well, let's talk about your experience. I want you to start back at the beginning, talk about your family, talk about your childhood, talk about what it meant to grow up in the Order. Okay, that's that's a pretty broad question, I guess. But when I was three, I think I remember moving down to the mine. Now, it's, it's a really small community. It's just outside of Huntington, Utah. Up into the mountains, it's a small little canyon. People's houses were up on the hillsides. We'd use some mining equipment to bulldoze the mountainside out, put a little trailer in. And there were maybe 12, 12 or 15 families up there. So we were kind of isolated from the rest of the order. You know, we would come up to Salt Lake and go to churches and stuff. But, you know, as a young kid, I was separated you know, from the rest of the group. So I remember, you know, one of my memories of going to church and just kind of going back to what we were talking about. When I first started Sunday school classes, I was probably five or six years old. Just, well, actually, it was right before I was going to go to school. And they started teaching us what to say when we were asked what religion we belonged to or what church we and, you know, they told us to just tell people, ask that, oh, I'm a Christian, I don't go to a church. And those early classes were coaching the kids to 
to start deceiving, you know, the outsiders that we had to associate with. And, you know, we were told things like, you know, we can't make friends. We, we have to be polite. We have to be kind, but we're not supposed to form any personal attachments to outside kids and just stick to a friend's group. And, you know, when I was a little older than that, my dad married his second wife. And, you know, I didn't really know what happened, but he really disappeared from my life. You know, he had to work all day. He working 10, 12 hours a day during the week. And then on weekends, he would come up to Salt Lake. His girl wife was up here in Salt Lake. So we wouldn't really see him on the weekends. And, you know, that was really, I remember being a confusing time. But when I turned eight, that is, of course, you know, the age of accountability. And he told me who I was. You know, he sat me down and had a talk, told me my grandpa was Ortel, brother Ortel, and I found out that he was married to you know, this, uh, Becky. And I remember being very proud, you know, that I was old enough to be trusted with that. And I don't know how long after that. Now, um, is that a standard thing to tell kids when they're eight about this, or is that just an experience yeah. that was isolated? No, that is, you know, I, as far as I know, it's the same as uh, with the Mormon religion. You know, age is the age of accountability. So, for the most part, that's when kids are told. But at the same time, you're also told you can't tell anybody. And up to that point, you know, I had asked my grandma, who's your husband? Who's my grandpa? And she would tell me, it's Harold. I'd say, where is he? Oh, he's a, he's a truck driver. He just hasn't come home yet. And she'd have that same smirk. You know, I talked about that earlier, the smirk when we talked about the lie of the separation of the business and the religion part. That smirk, I just remember all throughout my life. Uh, you know, shortly after my dad told me all this, he set up a meeting for me to meet Brother Ortel and talk to him. And I remember uh, sitting with him and, know him telling me about how important the family was and feeling really proud of that and the next time I saw Ortel I walked up to him and I told him hi with that smirk you know I had that smirk on my face and he looked at me and he said who are you little boy and that was really typical that was just something that happened all the time not being recognized by your own family members? Yeah, yeah. You just hear stories like that all the time. But, you know, that's one of my, one of the memories that really still stands out from being that age. Talk to but, me more about the mine. I want to know why it was your family that was chosen to go down there. And I want you to kind of explain the mine. We, we covered a little bit in the episode, but I want you to talk about what it's like living that sort of lifestyle. Okay, so like I was saying, it's 12 miles outside of Huntington. Huntington is a really small town in itself. So, you know, to get groceries or anything, we would have to drive into Price, and I, that's about 40 miles away. So 
you're, you know, you're really isolated. You're working on not even a minimum wage. My dad had 10 kids. And I think when he left, he was making something like $6.40. So, you know, we, we even had to live off the land and the, the deer and elk herds would migrate through the canyon and would shoot deer and elk when we got a chance. And that was a lot of our meat. My dad, he, I can't remember how old he was when he started there, but he worked for them for 24 years. He was a union president at the mine. And that, that's a whole other story. Just a sham of a union. But basically it was just a sham of a union. He was put in as president. So my understanding from the mine was that it was just, it was very poor conditions, right? Um, yeah. Hard yeah. living. So what was your house like? So the first house we lived in, was a tiny little trailer. It was just pieced together from other trailers and it was, it was in such poor shape. But when the wind would blow, you could actually feel the breeze blow through the trailer. We had candles as air fresheners, I remember, and, and the wind would actually blow them out. And when it rained, we had buckets and pans all over the floor just trying to catch the rainwater. We had animals chewing up through the floor and my brother had a skunk crawl into his bed one night and started licking his toes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was were, really... were those happy memories though? Do you do you look back on that with fondness or was it difficult? I I do, but my parents sure don't. It was really hard for them. So let's talk about that a little bit because you know, in sort of this larger Mormon culture, if you will, there's this idea that hard living is sort of a gift. It's a blessing. It's a sacrifice. And we're supposed to enjoy that. So did you, oh, did your parents experience true. that? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And I've often commented on this since I've left the group that the more sorrow and misery you have, the more righteous you feel. Uh, they tell you that you're going to get the kingdom in heaven. The more you pay in this life, the richer you'll be in the afterlife. So you just naturally take that to mean that the more hardship, suffering that you have to live through, the better off you're going to be. And where does that idea come from? Is that something that you would attribute to Mormonism? Because this is something else I want to talk about, this idea it's really easy for me to connect, say, the FLDS or the AUB with the mainline LDS church. Those languages seem similar to me. But Kingston seemed to have developed sort of their own theology over time. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I have thought about that a lot. But you see that as a common thread. But I think it's just a natural just a natural philosophy you have to adopt because the lifestyle itself doesn't allow for anything else. I think it's just part of the way people make what they're living through okay. Uh, the Kingstons are all about the money. They, they have roughly 3,000 members. So every penny they can pinch from each member really adds up to them. And I think that is, it's just inevitable that that hardship and that suffering. I want to come back to your 
your childhood and growing up, but give our listeners sort of a basic primer of how the Kingstons work. So if you were to explain sort of the structure of the group, the core beliefs, and sort of how they function now. I know that's a really broad question, but act as if you are telling people who have never heard anything about the group before. Okay, basically, uh, their theology is anything that was said or written by Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, or John Kay, in some way, shape, or form. You know, they believe in it. They put their own twists on it, of course. Uh, They believe in united order and polygamy. Those are basically the core beliefs. Uh, the business aspect of it is is the real focus. That's not something that they will admit is at the forefront, but the way that your life actually plays out, that's really what it's all about. Um, one thing they do teach is money is the lifeblood of the world, and whoever can stem the flow of that lifeblood controls the world. So their ultimate goal is to pile up all the money to just get that flow to stop within the Kingston group and eventually they'll control the world. So and and we're not talking about just like, you know, figuratively piling up the money. There are rumors of the Kingston's literally keeping piles of money while members live in poverty. So talk about that a little bit. So this is some stuff that came out after I left the group. There were a couple of guys who were just wanting to leave, getting, being disenfranchised, and they they knew of a pile of money in uh, Rachel's house and got caught stealing. And when they got caught, Paul went to check on his own stash and found that it was missing. From everything that I can gather, sounds like it was around about $5 million million in gold and silver. Why not spend it? Why was it sitting there? What was the point? Just like I said, to dam up the the flow of that lifeblood. They want to, they want to control the majority of the world's money. And they think that that's a realistic goal with all these people working for almost nothing and it's spending almost nothing to live that soon they'll be able to do it. Do we know where that teaching stems from? Who, who started, you know, if you could quote a leader that started teaching that off the top of your head, would you know where that idea came from? No, but it's something I heard my entire life. Uh, they talk about it in church right along with the religion and learning about God or, Jesus. In fact, more so learn about work ethic, business, saving money, and turning your money in. What about the disparity, though? So, you know, there, as an update to since the last time we recorded this, there has been a federal raid, and they they went and raided Jacob Kingston's mansion. And we know it's this big, huge, large mansion. And he was one of the CEOs of the Washakie Renewable Energies. And so he's got this huge home and everyone else is living in poverty. Was that noticed by members? It is noticed. But anybody who brings it up 
is criticized if if you don't trust that they're working in your best interest then you're ostracized and that's something I started doing before I left every time I would see something like that I would I would be vocal about it I would make people acknowledge it every time they try to deny it I would make them acknowledge that and they it, it was a really hard last year I mean, I, everywhere I went people would whisper and people would turn away from me and you know, it's something I don't I didn't feel bad about because I you know deep down I, I knew I was right as time went on and I saw more of this stuff I knew that they weren't who they said they were I knew that they were really bad people Talk to me about numbered men because I've now learned I've heard a lot of different weird sort of Kingston folklore about it now. Um, and we talked about this in the last podcast, but there are some rumors that the numbering still goes on. So there is this very much this hierarchy and we see this in the mainline LDS church as well. The closer you are to the top, the more revered and loved and more resources you have. But in the Kingston's it's actually numbered. And um, a lot of the Kingston members would have you believe that that was, is something that's not going on anymore. I didn't know they were trying to hide that. That's funny. That's that's a core belief as well. So to say that that's not going on is just ridiculous. Uh, but the whole numbered men thing comes from the, I think it's in Revelation. It's been a long time since I've really been up on all my Bible references. But uh, the 144,000 priests that were ruling uh, uh, one of the last days in heaven, I can't remember how it goes. But there's only 144,000 priests. And I know they don't have anywhere near those numbers yet, but, you know, every, those numbers are really, really coveted. And they're actually used as a tool by the leadership to manipulate and reward, punish. And it's. And the really numbering is only for men, right? It's, it's not only something. For men. Yeah. Only. And would it be given to, like for you to you for example or does it is it a certain right as you gain a certain okay so there was a period when paul just took over that that he kind of put this idea out that everybody in the order was just not living up to god's wishes and we just weren't doing what we were supposed to do we weren't saving enough we weren't working hard enough we good enough and so he he pulled the numbers for years probably over 10 years, nobody was ordained with a number, and it was a really hard, demoralizing time for the order. And after a while, he started giving them out again. That really got everybody recharged and working hard again. But what were you saying before? Uh, no, you no, me to... no, you answered my question. That's good. Um. Tell me about what a, a church service looks like. So we, down at the mine, we had our church services in the scale house. Um, it was just an open room, I would say, I don't know, 20, 25 feet long by 15 feet wide and just rows of chairs. Everybody kind of crowded in there and, and three or four seats facing the audience. And, uh, 
the higher ranking men would, would sit in those chairs, conduct services. Uh, up here in Salt Lake, for most of my years, we had had church services in the standard restaurant supply building. Uh, we did have a little church building down in Salt Lake that it, it burned down. Um, it was way too small for the church, so we had people flooding outside on the steps and standing outside of windows. Uh, so when we moved to standard, uh, you know, it was a, a big move up. We had classrooms for all the Sunday school classes. And we had room for the whole group to sit in the big warehouse spare. Um, now they're doing them at the David Palmer building. That's pretty much the same type and big open warehouse with rows of chairs. What? So you go and you have, you know, in the mainline LDS service, we have sacrament meeting, we have Sunday school and we break usually for early study or priesthood or young women, something like that. Okay. What, what kind of meetings did you have? What did your meetings look like? So when the order started, it was, you know, Elder started under the premise that every single thing was taken away. We had to start out from base zero. And when you say taken away, you mean from John Taylor had it, and after John Taylor, it's gone. So what you mean is John Taylor had everything that Joseph Smith had restored, but after John Taylor, everything is taken away, and you, your job as the order is to restore it again. Yeah, basically. And that included not only material and worldly possessions, but things like sacrament, things like, um, you know, the, the keys to uh, sealing marriages. Just as we were worthy, God would give them back. So sacrament was something that God was still holding, uh, sacraments and temples. So, you know, we never did that stuff, even though we believed in it. We always felt like we just weren't good enough to have God store that right so we would go to a meeting at uh, i think it started at 10 o'clock at first you'd start with let's see we'd start with the hymn we had a you know the typical lds hymn books we'd start with the hymn then a prayer then another hymn and then you would have your guest speaker you know it was usually somebody like carl fred or or someone like Elden, you know, those guys that some of the elders, the guys that have been around for a long time. So we'd listen to the guest speaker and then they would break up into men's and women's quorums. Oh, and they're, they're, uh, grouped into age, age ranges and then also men and women. That was every other Sunday. And the, the Sundays that they didn't break into those men's and women's quorums and Everybody just sat in the main meeting, and you would hear the guest speaker, and then you would hear Paul, and and whoever else he called, and whoever else wanted to talk. Uh, sometimes you would have, I guess it's like the LDS sacrament meetings where people would get up. We called them testimony meetings. People would get up and give me a typical Kingston testimony. Uh, <laughs> when you were young, the thing you would usually say is. You'd get up and say, I'd like to say I'm glad to be here. I'm thankful for my membership in my in the order, for my parents, my brothers and sisters, my job. You know, and it would just carry on like that. As you got older, there was more substance. You know, you, you could be more specific about things that you were thankful 
or or people would tell about dreams that would confirm their faith um, experiences. Sounds very similar to to LDS testimony meeting as well. What was the Kingston view? What is the Kingston view on the mainline LDS church? Uh, their view on the LDS church is that they have apostatized that after the manifesto, they ceased to be the kingdom of God. And without somebody carrying on that legacy and passing those keys down and continuing to live in polygamy and bear children under that law, that the earth would be destroyed. When we saw the shooting star at night, we were told that that was another world where their order it was another it was another world where their order what sorry uh, we were told that the order okay it was another world where the order on that world and they you know they didn't live the the laws of god so god destroyed the world and that was the shooting star that we saw oh because the order had fallen right i see interesting that's, <laughs> I don't want to laugh at that because LDS, we have plenty of uh, funny folklore, things like that as well. Yeah. And to give you just a fair background, I know you don't, you don't know me well, but I don't believe in anything order at all. And I just remember the question you asked me, you know, what was my, when I said, okay, when I made the comment about, of course, women can't hold the priesthood, I said that kind of ironically. You know, I, sure. I, I know that that's something that just comes from them. I don't, I don't believe in anything that they teach at all. So that's just a kind of a synopsis of where I stand right now. Well, and that's a good segue. So you grow up in the mines. Talk about when you start coming into conflict. Actually, let's talk about <laughs> sort of your negative experiences with the order. Okay. So, you know, when I was younger, of course, everything I remember fondly. I liked living where I lived, and I liked being a part of the order, and I, I believed it all. But as I got older, I found out about a lot of discrimination to our family. My mother's mom was forced into a marriage with Ortel when she was really young. And shortly after, you know, within days, she just, she couldn't, she couldn't live that, and she ran away. And, Ended up marrying another guy, had my mom and some other kids, and she came back to the order. And so there was a lot of bad blood. And when I got older, that stuff surfaced. And it kind of forced me to realize that my place was as a grunt, as a worker. I was 18 years old. I was working underground. And every time I would see Paul, he would ask me, I was a foreman yet if I had taken the crew. And I realized that at 18, I was at the, at the height of my progress that I wasn't going to go any farther. And I had to be okay with that. And that's really what made me start looking at the order more skeptically. I also worked for Daniel at Washakie for a couple of summers and got to see who he really was. And that was really eye-opening. That let me see the real person versus the the legend that they try to get you to create on your own with all these guys. Give me some examples of working with Daniel. He was really volatile. 
we were building an ostrich pen one summer, and typically we would get off work at eight o'clock, and we were we were all in the frame of this this pen one day, and it's a metal frame, and a thunderstorm rose about seven thirty. So of course, you know, he called us all down, told us to go in the house, wait up the thunderstorm, and about eight o'clock the storm ended, and Daniel was nowhere to be found, and we. We found a nest of baby hawks that we wanted to go just check out, see how they were growing, see how they were coming along. And we wanted to find Daniel to see, you know, to get excused. Uh, we, it was, it was the regular time we were supposed to get off work. But every day he would tell us when we could get off work. Well, he wasn't there. So we decided to, you know, well, it's eight o'clock. He'll be okay. If we just go, he's not going to make us go back out and work. So we went and looked at the hawks and got back into the truck. And just as we were heading back up to the house, he came barreling down in his pickup. Just You could tell he was mad just the way he was driving really fast. And comes, He came screeching to a halt right in front of us and stormed up to the driver's side. And he came up to the driver's side of the truck and just started slapping the kid that was driving. Just slapping him in the face over and over over 20 times and yelled at him the whole time and you know that was a very memorable experience what was his relationship with the kid that he was slapping do you remember <laughs> older half brother oh wow what is yeah. it with daniel and the slapping all the stories are always him slapping faces do we know is that a kingston thing or is that just a daniel thing no that's a kingston thing they spank and slap kids yeah, they actually teach people in churches, in Sunday school classes, how to physically discipline their kids, even as young as several weeks old. They they talk about if you're going to slap the kid, you have to hold the hair so their their brain won't be jarred in their skull. And this is something that Ortel was really big on, so all of his kids knew that, you know, they knew that way of life. They knew that type of punishment and it's something they are carrying even farther than our children. What is, I mean, what, why teach how to discipline your child? Is it just this, the idea of we care about families, so we want to help give people resources for families or? Yeah, they're really big on discipline. You know, of course they don't want anybody to, to be outside of the box. Um, why? Because what would that mean for the group? That would mean everybody, I guess, becoming wise to the, to the scam. Um, would it mean, was there also a risk of members maybe giving away trade secrets or maybe not helping acquire the wealth or maybe yeah, telling the that, truth? Yeah, that. Uh, one of the very worst things, the most evil thing a person can do is tell order secrets. So. You know, that, that is definitely a big word. You know, I remember a story that they told in church more than once about, uh, you know, about how to, how you train an elephant, how when it's a, a little baby, you chain it up with a big heavy chain, so heavy that no matter how hard it bites, it can't break that chain. It can 
jerk and pull until it's bleeding and it still can't break the chain. But when it's an adult, all you have to do is tie it up with a piece of twine. That's all it takes. And they're telling you this story in this context of raising, raising children. So kind of gives you an idea why that type of punishment is so important. You know, another really common phrase they use in church is, you have to raise your children like calves in a stall. And I remember thinking, even as a little kid, you raise calves in a stall so you can slaughter them. And really being disturbed by that, you know, and, and they also taught you to, when you have thoughts like that, to question yourself and to criticize yourself and to see it as a weakness of yourself. So at the same time that I was thinking that, thinking this just doesn't seem like a good thing to raise your kids like calves in a stall or to beat their spirit out of them like that. You know, at the same time, I was thinking, what what in me makes that seem bad when I know it's good? Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Um, I experienced similar things growing up in the LDS faith. Um, sometimes you're, you know, if you question something, you're made to feel shame about it. And I think it's just a sort of a mechanism of control in an institution to get people to be obedient. I mean, obedience is really, we talk about this, it's really a hierarchical value. It's not necessarily a spiritual value. It's meant to keep people in in line, in order. And and you guys were literally the order you were about. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly it. So talk to me about some of the abuse you witnessed, because the Kingstons are so known for abuse. And I really want to dig into why. Why is it that the Kingstons uh, I mean, we're talking about groups like the FLDS who have a lot of really, you know, dark and pernicious abuse going on. And even in the LDS church, there's a lot of abuse within, you know, normal families like everyone else, but also in the authority. But why is the Kingston, why are they known for this? They really value discipline. They want to be able to tell a six-month-old child to stop crying, and that kid will stop crying. They just, they want absolute discipline and obedience. And like I said before, that's something that Ortel was really, really big on. Every one of his kids will, will talk about that. In Sanjeev's book, he told a story of my dad, I think, my dad's first memory of Ortel, who was his dad, was of a strange man coming into his house and beating. But, you know, I remember... Another uh, memory with Daniel. I was sitting behind him in church. He was with one of his plural wives. I don't remember which one, but she was holding this little baby and it was fussing and crying. It was still in diapers, couldn't talk, couldn't walk. It could crawl and hold on to furniture. So I don't know exactly how young that was, but it was just fussing and getting bored after two hours of sitting in one place in a hot, stuffy, smelly warehouse room. And finally, Daniel grabbed that kid, just snatched it up off the floor and slammed him down on his lap. And that kid sat ramrod straight, didn't make a sound, didn't move, didn't fuss, didn't try to get off his lap for the rest of the meet. And that was something people admired, that was something everybody thought was really good. And yet we hear stories of, you know, when Daniel separated from the state from his kids, when he comes back into their lives, they start wetting the bed again. and and uh, having nightmares and a lot of trauma from being in his presence. Yeah, he was, and he's not the only one. I mean, he's probably less able to hide it than 
a lot of the other guys, you know, but. Would you say that his sort of behavior, his discipline, this sort of rough, the slapping, which is something we hear a lot about, or we talked about this in the last podcast, sort of the, the rug burns, the arm burns that, that you would do, or the holding a baby's, you know, covering their mouth so they wouldn't cry, that kind of stuff. Is that something that's pretty pervasive for most order families? Yeah, the only thing that surprised me was the the rug burns. I don't know. That that was really weird to me, but the slapping, the covering the mouth, you know, that kind of stuff. Like I was saying, it's talked about in church. It's taught. This is how you do it. You're going to slap the kid in the face, take him by the hair, and lift up a little so their head won't shake, slap them, their brain won't jar inside their skull. I mean, that, that part baffles me. And we're going to talk about this too, because recently something else that's come out since we've done the podcast about, I want to say it was in fall time. I got contacted by the news because there had been some stories surfacing of order members. I think in Utah in the last year, I, I can't even remember now the number, but in 2015, there were three or four at least stories of car accidents where there was at least one fatality. And in one case, there was multiple fatalities. And uh, the news had figured out that they were all connected to Kingston deaths because all, in all of these cases, there were no seatbelts involved. And so the news said, hey, do you want to talk about this? And I said, I'm not going to put my face on that, but let me see if I can you know, talk to someone else who will. And I talked to so many people in the order that said, yeah, this is openly talked about in church, but nobody had the courage to sort of do this publicly. And, and uh, the story actually just broke. Emily Tucker was brave enough to talk about it. But talk to me about some of these other harmful ideas, why would they talk about not buckling kids up at church? What's that about? I don't know that I've ever heard them say not to buckle kids up, but just the whole lifestyle doesn't allow for that. You know, these women, these plural wives are left to fend for themselves. The men don't support them. They have to go to work. They have to earn the food the money for the food, the money for the cars, the money for the clothes. So if they're supposed to have a kid every year and work a less than minimum wage job, how is it practical for them to buy a vehicle that can strap in 18 kids? You know, and that's not an unrealistic number of kids. Yeah, I was, um, I've been to the Kingston grocery store a few times in Salt Lake and, uh, and we can link to that. There's, there's, you know, the businesses is a whole other world that I've been open to. But at the particular time that I went, the store was closing and I wasn't paying attention and there were a bunch of vans there and a bunch of, you know, order kids running around in the grocery store with no, you know, no shoes on and it was winter and no coats and they were, you know, seemed perfectly comfortable there. But I did notice that there seemed to be more kids than there were, you know, car seats yeah. for. Absolutely, yeah. So, but you're also taught that God will protect you as long as you're living a good life. If you're doing the things an order member should do, if you're working hard, you're turning your money in, if you're following the law of one above another, then he will protect you. And if something like that happens, it's your fault. Now, what about the things, um, I've spoken with a police officer who actually helped investigate a death on, on Christmas Eve one year of a child. There's some stories surfacing like this. Why is it that we can hear reports of the abuse and sometimes it's sort of prosecuted 
we hear about these car seat infractions. We hear about the poverty. Why is nothing being done? Why? How is the order getting away with this? Well, I've never seen money exchange hands, but that's the only thing that makes sense to me. You know, shortly after I left, I did a lot of work with the Attorney General's office, Guardian Items office on a couple of different cases. And at one point, we had compiled enough evidence for Mark Shirtliff to be able to prosecute Paul and his full brothers and sentence them for crimes totaling something like 300 years uh, prison time. So we had warrants on these guys, and we were sitting with constables pointing people out. The constables would call Shirtliff's office, and he would tell them not to serve papers. So, you know, like I said, we literally gave Shirtliff mountains of paperwork and evidence on various crimes. Not more than a few days after we physically gave that to his office, he was on Oprah, I think, and he was he said, nobody has come forward. No one has shown any evidence of any crimes. If somebody would come forward, we would prosecute. And do you think that's about money? Because, you know, similar stories since this podcast is aired have surfaced about the current attorney general. Um, they linked, you know, 30, at least 35 to $40,000 of campaign funds being accepted by the attorney general's office. And the attorney general was the keynote at the, you know, Washakie Christmas party. And there's these sort of tenuous connections. And when you talk to order members, they say, oh, yeah, you know, one of the things Paul says is I have the attorney general in my back pocket. Now, the attorney general's office has denied these claims. Um, and I think they even froze the campaign funds or something until they could investigate it further. It seems to me that whether or not, you know, anyone is being paid off, that the order leaders use this to control their members regardless. They they make they have just enough of a connection to make order members think that they are powerful or at least more powerful than they are, if that makes sense. Yeah, I that is true. But another experience I had, it, it had been a couple of years after I left, me and another uncle who left at the same time, we were working together. Uh, he had a sign shop and we were in there working one day and a lobbyist came to the door and introduced himself and asked if we wanted to donate to his his cause. And we asked him to see a list of his contributors. And the top 15 contributors were order businesses. So, I mean, the money is definitely being used. You know, it's being used to buy influence with lobbyists. I know that firsthand. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think that there is more of probably money changing hands than people want to realize or want to acknowledge. And do you think that I, I got the sense with Shirtliff, generally speaking, that it wasn't just about money. It was sort of this idea of religious freedom, uh, polygamy, LDS, Mormon shame. Do you think that that plays a factor into it as well? Yeah, that is part of it. And one of the attorneys we were working with, he was talking to one of our representatives, our state representatives. And, you know, this guy finally told him, how am I supposed to prosecute this? My great great grandfather. My great great grandfather so was a polygamist. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just nobody has any interest in pursuing it for more than one reason. I want to talk about the businesses because I am still finding more and more businesses that are Kingston businesses. In fact, most of South Salt Lake our order businesses and a lot of stuff on Redwood Road. And I'm talking in Utah specifically, but order businesses are not just in Utah, they're everywhere. And they own some 
national companies that people frequent. And, and I thought that I understood this when I recorded the podcast, but I don't think I understood the absolute magnitude of businesses that they own. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. Tell me how many, tell me some of the big ones. Okay. Of course, Standard Restaurant Supply is one of their, their major businesses. It's in Utah, Nevada, Idaho, Colorado. And who is the CEO of that? So Eldon was in control of that. He died after I left, but I think Ellery is controlling that. And are most of the employees order members or they, they hire out now to? They hire out all the managerial positions or as many as they can possibly fill will be staffed with order members. Including women? Yeah. Of course, they're never the ones at the top. They're maybe branch managers, but there's always somebody like Paul or, well, Paul's over everything, of course. Every business decision, it has to be verified by him. You know, I have heard rumors of Jacob kind of flying solo with WRE. But back when I was in the group, he had a pretty tight hold on everything. And WRE is Washington Renewable. Yeah, Washington Renewable. And and I'm noticing now. So another thing that has happened: uh, some of order members have come forward with some stuff, and were able to uh, help move forward a federal investigation that resulted in a raid that happened. And I talked about this earlier with Jacob Kingston's mansion, and they raided, I think, nine businesses. And this is recently, so it's still pending. The investigation, I think, is still open. But since doing that, I've noticed that some of the movie theaters in Utah that are sponsored by WRE, Washakie, um, have changed their name. And it's, I'm trying to think, uh, I saw on the gas station too in Idaho, it's some fuel company. Is that the one right before the Idaho border, right uh-huh. by the Washakie farm? Yeah. Oh, good. Do you know the fuel company I'm talking about? I can't think of it. Uh, Yeah, I I can't think of it either, but I know what you're talking about. It's, uh, yeah, sorry. Where did the order get the majority of their money? Do you know which which businesses are the most lucrative? So when they had the mine, that was one of the top. Standard Restaurant Supply is is at the top now. Best Distributing is a big one. Mountain Coin used to be, but that's kind of waning. What about their uh, waste disposal companies? I'm noticing those are everywhere in Utah. Yeah, they are. They are, and but it's not the top performer. Standard is definitely the top performer. And is that Standard C- Plumbing w- as well? Standard Plumbing. I don't know about Standard Plumbing. I don't think that's theirs. It could be. So why did the mine? So are they in the mining business at all? Still. They still own Hiawatha, but I don't think they can go into the mine. I think they've lost the mineral rights, but they still own that little ghost town. Um, I don't know if they're fighting to get access back or exactly what they're doing with that. But as far as I know, they, they lost the mine. They lost everything as far as mineral rights, but they still own uh, Hiawatha and Trail Canyon where I grew up. They still own that. There's a few people living there. Some of them were hired by the company who bought the new mine, but it's not Kingston Company. Let's go back to you again. You began to question the faith. Talk to me about leaving the group. Okay, so <laughs> this is hard to figure out where to start on this, too. Um, so I was 
in the coal mine. Like I said, I was 18. I was working underground and really struggling with my place in the group and accepting that. And then I was in a mining accident that it was pretty bad. So it put me down for months. I was bedridden for a couple of months and I had a lot of time to read and study and think. And the whole time Paul was questioning me when I was, if I felt good enough to go back into the mine and I would tell him, I I think I might want to go to school. But the next time I would see him, he would say, are you ready to go back in? You ready to get back to work? And that all helped me to to see what the order really was. But at the same time, I still had my family in there. My family still mom and dad. So I really wasn't okay with just leaving and disappointing them and shaming the whole family and leaving them behind. I'm really close to my family. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get them on my side. And over a period of a couple of years, I was able to. The uncle I talked about a little earlier, he was the only one who knew that I really, really wanted to leave. I was really open with, and he really wanted. And uh, one night we were talking, and he says, let's just get in your car and go. He says, we'll just drive, and wherever we end up, that's where we'll live. And I told him, well, let me go back down to the mine and talk to my parents one more time. And if I don't make any progress with them, then we'll leave. So I went down, and I talked to my mom and dad, and they I asked them all these questions I had. I brought up examples of Paul and his brothers not living the, the rules that we were all set to live by, talking about theological contradictions. And they, my dad just kept giving me order answers. He just kept giving me these circuitous, confusing, nonsensical order answers. And I was getting so frustrated. My mom really wasn't saying too much. I remember just putting my head down and on the verge of just storming out and leaving forever. My mom said, Ronald, we need to tell him. And the way she said that, I knew, I knew that she was on the same page. And sure enough, they, they told me, yeah, we don't believe in it anymore. But we have Carolyn and Kristen and Emily, which, you know, are my younger sisters. We have Carolyn and Kristen and Emily that really believe in it. And they're making a stand. They're going to church every weekend and they're showing us that they want to be good order members. What if they decide to stay? What if we lose them? How do we get them out? And I just, I told them, well, we can do it. No, we'll, we'll do it. <laughs> and so, you know, luckily the whole family left all together and that's a really rare thing. Yeah, it is for, for any, anything in Mormonism. I think that's rare. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, when we, we left, all our money was tied up in our, our hidden account. So when you get paid, they don't actually give you a paycheck. They just write down literally on a piece of scrap paper, say, this is how much money you have in our account. And then at the end of the year, they hide how much you have. So if you want to know what your, your total statement is, you go to Alana. And say, and she's at the what bank. I, she's yeah, banker. yeah. She keeps track of all the personal statements, all the you know the financial records and stuff. And again, this is something if you haven't listened to the Kingston episode, listen to that first, so you can understand how this works. Yeah. So you'll say, "How much do I have on my secret statement?" And she'll dig in her book. Of course, you can't see it, and then she'll tell you a number. And if 
you haven't kept every single monthly statement for your entire life, you don't know if she's telling you the truth. Just take her out of work. So, you know, when we were trying to leave, my mom and dad really had no money. They had everything tied up in the orders account. The money for their trailer, they had to depend on Wendell and Paul turning that over to them, buying that from them because they didn't own the land. And they just wouldn't be cooperative. They wouldn't give them their their statements. They wouldn't give them the money for the house. They just kept leading my parents on. They would tell them, okay, if you're ready to leave by Monday, then we'll give you your check Monday. So they rented a moving truck, packed up all their belongings, went to get their check, and they just told them, oh, sorry, no, that's you don't have any money. So we had it turned to a sort of blackmail. It's really kind of funny. Uh, my dad and Paul and Hiram were really close growing up. Of course, they're half-brothers, but all about the same age, so they were really close. And we happened to have a picture of my mom at a high school dance with Paul. And, you know, she was sitting on his lap for the photo. And, of course, back then, dating wasn't as big as soon as it, it was then. So they made a copy of that picture, a bunch of copies of that picture. And then on the back, they put 10 order standards broken by Brother Paul. Number one, dating. Number two, question mark. Three, question mark. Four, question <laughs> And then uh, in the morning, when the school bus came to pick up the kids, our house was the very first stop. It would go through Trail Canyon, pick up all the order kids. Then it would go down into Huntington and pick up the outside. So as the order kids would get on the bus, Emily would hand out that paper to all the order kids. And some of them would take it, some of them wouldn't. Some of them would just let it fall to the ground. And Emily told them, if you don't pick that up and take it home, an outsider will find it. Oh, my goodness. So they took that home, and two days later, Paul called my dad and said, hey, we have your check ready. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Was it hard yeah. to adjust outside the order? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because it's a, it's like a different reality, the, the world that you grew up in, the the order of the lies that they told you that, you know, the big bad outside world, that was real. That was reality. That's something we knew our whole life. And then to have to just go into that, you can know intellectually that they had lied to you and that it really wasn't that way. But, you know, 20 something years being taught that on some level, it just, it really affects you. And you probably heard if you talked to very many ex order members, we all have stories of going to the bank first time and trying to get money out that we had put in. It's it's a really traumatic experience for everyone. Yeah, banking seems to be the the thing that's. I mean, like with LDS members, it's like the first time that you know if they leave the church, it's the first time drinking alcohol or something. But with order members, it's the first time they go to the bank. Yeah, and it's it's so funny to hear all these stories, but when you're going through it, it's it's not funny. Uh, what was that the hardest? Tell me about your first time at the bank. Okay, the, the first time I had to get a large amount of money was the worst for me. I 
was buying a car or something. I had to go get $3,000 and I pulled up to the bank and just the world started spinning. I went into a full anxiety attack, started sweating and sitting out in my car trying to gather my bearings so I could go in and get $3,000. And, you know, and I finally pulled myself together and that and I walked up to the register and filled out the slip and then started justifying this withdrawal, telling her, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy a car and I, I need $3,000. I might be able to get it for, for 2000 but uh, <laughs> in case I can, I need to get 3000 out. And they were looking at me like I was crazy. Just told me, oh, okay, that's what you need. You know, and, and the whole time you're doing this, you know, it's ridiculous, but, but you can't quite stop yourself. Can't, yeah, that's just how it, it's always been. So, you know, on one level, you know, you're, being ridiculous and that nobody needs to justify getting their own money out, but it just happens. Just do it. Just scramble for excuses. <laughs> you know, there are more and more order members that are coming forward and speaking out, which is great, but your family has been probably one of the lone families speaking out for this for years. Have you guys experienced any pushback or threats? Well, these guys really overestimate their intimidation, and it usually works. But we're unique in a way that we we studied the theology, we studied the history before we left. So we really demystified these guys before we left. So at least for me, and I think my dad could really see it as well, that you know him growing up with them, that their intimidation wasn't really more than that. You know, when we first left, I would wake up and and go out to take the garbage can out or something really early in the morning, five thirty, six in the morning, and Daniel would be outside watching our house, or Arlen or somebody else would be parking the car across the street. And they'd see me and they'd take off, or they'd start taking pictures of me, or you know, just stuff like that. Yeah, we had a similar experience um, with some order members taking pictures of our house as well. Yeah. For some reason, that is a really intimidating thing for them. So if you take pictures of them, it's like you're going to use that as evidence to prosecute them, polygamy or whatever. So for an outsider to take pictures of them, for a news station to record them, that's really a bad really don't like that. So I think them doing that to you, they think that's really intimidating and imposing. I think that's why they do that. They tapped our phone one time. This was a really strange experience. I was sleeping and early in the morning, really early in the morning, the sun's just coming up and my phone starts. So I get out of bed, I go pick up the phone and it's ringing on the other end too. And it rings for a minute and then Alana, her sleepy voice, answers the phone. She says, hello? Hello? Is this Alana? Yeah, who is this? This is Jeremy. Why did you call me? And then she hung up. <laughs> wow. And that was at an outside house. So, you know, I just, I really don't know how, how they were able to bug the phone system. You know, you're not the only person to tell me that. I've, um, 
I've spoken to two other people. In fact, one who's been out of the order for years and years and years, who still believes his phones are being tapped. Yeah, I think that's uh, a pretty safe bet. Um, you know, when we were at the mine, we actually found bugs in the phones. We found wires stuck to people's phone boxes. So, I mean, that's not something that's far-fetched. Uh, Arlen's one of those guys that that works on that. He used to kind of subtly brag about how easy it was to tap phones. Um, so I, that's definitely something they they like to do. What's the mechanism of that? Just to control members? Yeah, yeah. And you know, one thing when I was when I had kind of when I got wise to things, when I saw that they were really manipulating people, that it wasn't revelation or Paul talking to God. Uh, you know, one thing that was really funny is people would say things over the phone or talk about things in an order community area. And then next Sunday, Paul would speak specifically about that thing about, you know, nothing really bad, but people finding fault with somebody or spending money where they shouldn't have, you know, just things like that. And so people would actually think that God was telling him you know, their sins. But at that point in my life, it was just, it was obvious that things were bugged. Talk to me about the state that the order is in now. I want to know what you think now and where you think that they're headed. You know, that's hard to say because I'm, I'm definitely more removed now. Uh, the things I know on a, a daily basis. So I don't know what their motives are for telling me what they're telling me or if they're being fed information or it's secondhand. I do have family that's still active in that, but of course they treat me like an outsider, like I never knew what the order was. But I think it's going to be very similar to, you know, like, uh, like Saudi Arabia, these oil rich uh, nations that do live polygamy. There are just too many princes. There's so many sons who have that birthright in their own mind, but there are just not enough resources to satisfy that. So what will that mean for the boys? I hope that, you know, also with these new raids on, on Washkey, that's really encouraging. Um, I'm hoping stuff will come out with, you know, the current attorney general and Mark Shurlip. I hope investigations into that will, will just educate the public on just how much corruption there is. I hope more information will be passed, knowledge. What is something that listeners um, who want to help, how can listeners help? I would say the biggest thing that listeners can do is not patronize their businesses. Does that punish, you know, the poor order members like yourself, the grunts, as you say? No, because they're already punished. You're already not making a livable wage by not supporting these businesses. This uncle I was talking about, he worked at AFAB, which is the uh, fabrication department of A1 Disposal. He was 13 years old making those garbage kits. Wow. I was 11 and he was 13 and we were in charge of production of Spithy Ice. We were unsupervised for 12-hour shifts at a producing ice for all of Salt Lake County Fair or Raging Waters for all the Conicos. And he was 13. I was 11. We had a couple of nine-year-olds working with us. So, you know, by patronizing these businesses, that's what you're supporting. 
I have one more question, then I'll let you go because I just forgot about it as we're talking about. Talk to me about uh, desert tactical arms because I it's terrifying for me to think that the Kingston's own an arm company who I've heard yeah. rumors that they sell to the Russian military and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's uh, I know Nick is involved in that. Just before I left, I remember him talking about wanting to do something like that, and uh, I do know a couple of his half brothers who are on the outskirts and have left. So, yeah, I know that they're, they're doing a lot of business. That's a really profitable company. And the Kingstons are absolutely sure that at some point they're going to go to war with the government. Now, now, I really don't think Paul is going to ruin his gravy train. I don't think he'll put the money part at stake, but that's what he tells him. That at some point we're actually going to have to go to war. So I've seen stockpiles of ammo and guns. Jacob sheetrock fully automatic guns into his walls when he was at Washkey before Washkey Renewable. That was when it was just Washkey Ranch. He had a little, like a three bedroom, four bedroom house, and. He just, he went to a gun show on the orders dime and bought tens of thousands of dollars worth of guns and she fucked them all into his wall. So yeah, you're right. It's a really horrifying thing. And as far as all their clients, I really don't know to say for sure, but everything I'm hearing, they're very lucrative arms. Are the Kingston's dangerous? Yes and no. Like I said before, I really don't think Paul would want, I don't think he would want to ruin the, the income. I, I think he realizes that anything like that, any compound style standoff would bring too much attention. But the problem is with the members, they're one revelation away from something terrible. And we're, you know, I was hoping for that revelation. And I know all the other young men were too. Life is so tedious monotonous, hard, unrewarding that you just, you long for that and everybody fantasizes about it. When the guys are together they just talk about how amazing it's going to be to be able to actually fight for the kingdom. You know, it'll be exciting. So, uh, so I'd say yes and no. They're one revelation away from something terrible. When we come in contact with the order members, what would you suggest? What's the best way to act around them? Well, it, that's assuming that you know their order members. I would just say act like yourself. They're, they like to blend in. It, it's not like you're going to come in contact with them and they're going to hurt you or you know, do anything like that. It's, they're just trying to blend in as much as they can. I guess the way you should act is really what you want to get out of the interaction. And if you want to acknowledge that you know who they are, that will definitely upset them. It'll ruffle their feathers. Um, if you want to get along with them, they're easy to get along with. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about the order? Yeah, just remind them that they lie about everything. You know? And when I was there, I did too. Like I said earlier in the conversation, before I went to school, my Sunday school class was preparing me how to lie to outsiders. So... One of the really frustrating things that I hear from outsiders who do interact with them is the complete trust. They're really good at getting a false trust and 
and selling you on this false idea of who they are. And I was, I was good at it too. I really believed that I was honest and that all those falsehoods I was telling people were truth because they redefine those terms. Yeah, I got, I got a, um, I posted some of the businesses online just as an FYI so people could know. And I got a message from someone saying, I know one of the people, one of the women that runs this business, she runs one of these real estate offices and she, it's not what you think. She's a single mom. She left the group a long time ago. She has nothing to do with the group. And I said, you know what? I, I know that that's not the truth. And, and, you know, it was this back and forth kind of like, don't hurt this, this poor single mother who's left the group. And it's really tricky because my feminist sympathies want to, you know, support, I would never want to tear down a woman, you know, working hard in any profession, but I also don't appreciate sort of this, this lie about what's really going on. Yeah. And that, that, like I said, it's really insidious. It's really deceiving. And and that protects these crimes. It's it's like the spokeswomen that they chose to stand up in front of the world and say, we're consenting adults. We are living this lifestyle of our own free choice. Those are women who were forced into marriage at young age. They were crying on their wedding day and, and talked to until they chose to go on with the wedding. And then they're getting up in front of people saying, we're consenting adults and the outside world sees a consenting adult. They don't know the story behind that true person. And it's just really frustrating to see that work on the, on the outside world. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for taking the time to educate us further about this group and really for being courageous and speaking out about some of the abuses that you've seen. Yeah, you're you're very welcome, and thank you for the work you're doing with it too. This is something that's very important to combat this horror, the, the evil that <laughs> blends into all of Utah. Are you open for people to add you on Facebook or to contact you? Yeah, I am. Okay, well, um, thanks everyone for listening and uh, for hearing Jeremy's story. You can read more about it in Sanjeev Bhattacharya's book, Secrets and Wives. And make sure you listen to the other consent episode. And thanks for listening to another episode of Europe Learning.